Well, hello again, um, and welcome to our second leadership lunch of 2018. I thought I'd start by acknowledging uh, a dear friend and supporter of CIS. Many of you know who he is. Uh, Michael Crouch could not be here today for obvious reasons. He passed away last week and his service was held just down the road a few hours ago. Uh, Michael uh, was known as the hot water king, uh, an industrialist, a philanthropist. He was a generous supporter of CIS uh, and is with us here today in spirit. Uh, this is our um, second leadership lunch, as I mentioned. Our first one just a month ago was by uh, Chris Bowen, the Labor shadow treasurer and a good friend of mine. Uh, today gives me great pleasure to introduce another friend of mine. I hope you don't think these leadership lunches are going to start turning into personal friends. <laughs> but I, I needed to use all my capital early on <laughs> before I might get the sack. <laughs> uh, I, it's a great thrill to introduce Lee Sales. You all know Lee, um, an award-winning journalist, a Walkley award-winning journalist. Um, she started her career in Brisbane for the Nine Network. Uh, she quickly became an emerging star at the public broadcaster. Uh, she really started making her name in the late 90s, early 2000s as the New South Wales state correspondent just down the road on Macquarie Street. Uh, then she went at a very young age as the Washington correspondent for the ABC from 2001 to 2006, the national security correspondent from 06 to 08, and then the presenter of Late Line from 08 to 11. And then, of course, since 2011, as she's been the presenter, the public face of the ABC, as the host of the award-winning current affairs program, uh, 7.30. Um, Lee is also an accomplished author and book writer. Uh, she wrote a very prominent book in 2006, 2007 on David Hicks. It was so important and influential that by the time she published it, David Hicks was actually released from Guantanamo. Uh, she's written a book on, 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 on doubt and she's working on a new project uh, coming out later uh, this year. Lee is, I should make it very clear, she's not one of us. That is, she's not a free marketeer, classical liberal, cultural conservative, but she's not one of them either. I think, I think that distinction is very important when we're talking about good quality public broadcast journalists. Someone who is objective, fair, balanced, tough on all sides. And all too often we're missing that calibre of journalists in these polarising and partisan times. One final point, I want to make it very clear that this lunch is indeed off the record. I know there's a couple of journalists back there who'd love to write something about it. Uh, please honour the code, or otherwise you won't be coming back. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming my friend, Lee Sales. Um, I was going to say some nice things about you, Switz, but I feel like it would be a bit of a love-in now um, after that. I was going to say, I, um, I, I have a very busy life and so I, I try to not do too much of this kind of stuff um, and the only reason I agreed to do it was because of my professional and personal regard for Tom, who I think the CIS is very lucky to have attracted to come here. Um, I think that the opinion pages at the Oz were never better than when Tom edited them. I think the Spectator Australia was never better than when Tom edited, edited it. And I think the reason for that is because even though he is an unashamed conservative, one of, one of you, um, he, uh, 
is a great independent thinker and his ideology doesn't dictate what he thinks. I think Hendrik Hertzberg um, in one of his books wrote something like an ideology is a very handy thing to have because it tells you what to think about things you know nothing about. <laughs> I've never known Tom to be uh, you know, that way at all. Um, the other, when he says as well, he's inviting his friends to speak. The reality is that Tom knows a hell of a lot of people and is very widely read and a very good networker, which is why I think um, projects that he's been involved with have always been really interesting because he's presented a really interesting array of viewpoints. So I'm very happy to be here today um, to be hopefully uh, one of those people. So before I tell you what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to give a superficial skim of the political landscape. I'm not going to ponder, is Malcolm Turnbull doing well? Or what's Tony Abbott up to? Or will Barnaby Joyce still have his job next week? Um, I think that there's limited utility in doing that because things change so fast and they change all the time. What I think is more useful is to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. What are the broader forces and the wider trends that have got us to where we are? I'm going to talk about the way that technology has transformed politics and the media and how that in turn is changing the notion of what a community is. The pace of change, I'd say, during the past five to ten years of my career is probably greater than it has been for the whole rest of my career. And that can be a little bit unsettling and scary. And so what I'm going to do, because in some ways it's a bit of a pessimistic um, backdrop that I'm about to lay out, is point out that even though we're living in a, in a time of great change, some things remain, some important human qualities remain as important as ever and as valuable as ever. So to give you a little bit of, um, flesh out a bit of the background Tom mentioned so you can judge the credibility or otherwise in the context of my background. I grew up in Brisbane and I went to school and university there where I studied journalism. And my first job, as Tom mentioned, was at Channel 9 in Brisbane, doing everything from rolling the auto queue to researching some stories and answering the phone and eventually reporting some stories. <clears throat> I stayed there for a couple of years and one day my boss pulled me aside and he said that he didn't think I had the looks or the voice for a career in television. <laughs> And then I moved to the ABC where I've been ever since. Every night I give that bloke a little wink and say, this one's for you. <laughs> um, I moved to Sydney in 96 where I've been ever since, except for the po posting that I had in Washington DC, which was straight after 9-11 and just after Hurricane Katrina, which was an incredibly fascinating time to be there. <clears throat> Although, of course, it just feels like it's become more and more interesting all the time. Since 2008, I have been desk-bound instead of out on the road, which is still very interesting in its own way because you're meeting in the job I do now people who are at the top of their game in all sorts of fields, you know, music or sport or politics or, or business all the time and that's a really privileged position to be in. I also host a podcast with my friend and colleague Annabelle Crabb, um, which is basically us talking about pretty much whatever we feel like, usually culture and, um, and film and television and books. Um, it has become surprisingly large. It has about, gets about 400,000 downloads a month and it has a Facebook group associated with it with about 30,000 members. So I'm juggling all of that also with a six-year-old and a four-year-old. So as you might imagine, I've never felt more relaxed and well-rested. <coughs> The media has changed enormously in recent years and that in turn is having an impact on the way politics and communities function. We're, we've seen in recent years what appears to be a change of mood in Western democracies um, with the rise of Donald Trump in the US and also the prominence of Bernie Sanders in the Democrat primaries, um, with the Brexit in the UK and also with the rise of minor parties and independents here in Australia in our election and the erosion of the primary vote for the major parties. 
I think that there are three trends which we've seen play out in the media over the past um, decade or so or a little bit longer that are driving some of these changes that we're seeing and that play into all of these um, trends and this behaviour that we're observing. I can sum them up as the accelerated pace, the rise of opinion and individual broadcasting. So I'm going to explain what I mean by all of those things and hopefully draw all of that together for you. So let's start with the accelerated pace. By that I mean the rise of 24-7 news and its implications. When I started in journalism 20 years ago, the industry was genuinely unrecognisable to what it's like today. In my field of television, there's no longer one flagship news bulletin at the end of the day. It's 24-7. Newspapers are 24-7 via their websites. And people can access the news, including video, anytime they like from anywhere in the world via their mobile devices. This has been the single biggest change to the way the media has operated in my entire career. Subsequently, it's been an enormous change in the way politicians operate. A few years ago, I interviewed the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and he was saying that in the election campaign in which he came to power in 1997, they needed one issue per day. So you would have one issue that would dominate the airwaves, um, hopefully lead the television news that night, and then roll over into the newspapers the next day. By 2005, they needed one issue for the morning, one issue for the afternoon and one issue for the evening. This speeding up of the news cycle means that there's little tolerance anymore for the long argument because the public's been conditioned to expect something new and exciting pretty much all the time. If you watched any of the debates in the US presidential election uh, at the end of 2016, you would have noticed that media and also political campaigns now do instantaneous fact-checking. Um, you know, a candidate makes a remark, it's assessed against the facts or what passes for the facts sometimes these days. Um, and then the analysis of how people have performed or their policy that they've announced, the analysis is offered instantly the second that the announcement is over. Um, it's all part of the speeding up of this news cycle. One of the biggest challenges though when you have this kind of fact checking and untruths are exposed is that even when they are exposed it, in this current environment it doesn't seem to make much impact. So if you take the example of Donald Trump he has been repeatedly exposed for lies and misleading statements and yet it doesn't seem to make very much difference. That is partly I think because the media has lost a lot of public trust because of its shoddy performance over the years. But politicians also crying fake news over any story that they don't like, um, whether it's true or not, is also, I think, a really disturbing development. Fake news actually means entirely and deliberately made up news stories that are planted on websites or social media with the view to affecting the way people vote or see an issue. It, just, it doesn't just refer to news stories that people think are unfavourable um, to them. I'll talk a little bit more about the facts and opinion uh, issue a little bit later. This rapid pace and this constantly um, constant expectation of, of updating information and news all the time means that media organisations have an enormous hole to fill constantly. And what often ends up filling it is trivia. So you might have seen last year, for example, Donald Trump took a trip to the Middle East and um, it appeared that his wife Melania was batting away his hand or wouldn't hold his hand on a few occasions. Um, there was plenty of social media attention on this and some mainstream media attention too. Now, I found that as intriguing as the next person and, and fascinating what was going on, but do I think that that has any bearing whatsoever on Donald Trump as the President of the United States? Does it say anything at all about his capacity to do that job? Absolutely not, and yet it occupies quite a bit of time because there's a hole to fill. 
Polls are another very simple way to occupy space and that's why their reporting has become so ubiquitous. There seem to be more and more polls all the time, you know, the Nielsen poll, the Galaxy poll, essential media poll, private organisation polling. Reporting the latest poll data is quick and easy and even the most inexperienced junior reporter can do it. It doesn't require having any contacts or even picking up the phone. And it also provides the essential ingredient that television loves, which is drama. You know, who's up, who's down, who's on the verge of a comeback, who's squandering everything. It's far cheaper and easier to report an opinion poll than it is to go out and find a legitimate news story. I recently sat down for a cup of tea with the former Prime Minister John Howard and we were discussing the way these days that national leaders are expected to keep up a running commentary on pretty much any issue that's out there. Um, this started happening during Howard's term in the Lodge as 24-7 News started appearing in Australia. But we were noticing that when you had, say, the Azaria Chamberlain case in the 1980s, it wasn't like Bob Hawke was expected to keep up a running commentary on her guilt or innocence. When John Lennon died, Malcolm, T Malcolm uh, Fraser wasn't expected to offer a statement on that. But you can bet that today, if similar ha stories happen, the Prime Minister of the day would be asked to provide a comment and would be badgered probably to do so. I'm making the 24-7 news cycle sound all very negative, and of course it isn't. It is a blessing for interest groups and lobbyists and pretty much anybody with a message that they want to get out because the media is so hungry for content, especially content that sparks discussion or controversy and that can help fill even more time. It's also great if you're a member of the public because a lot of information is instantly out there and available. And it's also available for free. Um, consumers themselves can provide lots of um, data and uh, mobile phone footage and whatnot to news organisations for use in the, use in the news. So there is this dem democratisation of the news process as well. So you have this accelerated pace. The second trend that you have alongside that is the rise of opinion which is the rise of commentary in place of legitimate news and fact-based reporting. As I mentioned before, the advent of the internet means that not only do consumers get much of their news instantly, they can also get it for free from websites. People no longer need to wait for the evening news or get the afternoon newspaper or the morning newspaper to see pictures of big news stories. Nobody's waiting for the news and the more important thing is that nobody is paying for the news. So this means compared to 10 or 20 years ago, television ratings are way down and so are newspaper circula circulations. Smaller audiences means fewer advertisers and cheaper rates for the advertisers who do want to buy space. Less revenue from advertising and also in the case of newspapers, the loss of classified advertising which migrated online means less money to spend on journalism, which means fewer journalists to chase down legitimate news. Now, we already have established that 24-7 news is hungry, hungry, hungry. There's a huge amount of time to fill, but simultaneously there are fewer resources with which to fill it. So what is the answer for that? More space to fill, fewer means to do it. The answer is to fill it up with non-stop opinion and commentary. Not news reporting, not even fact-based analysis, just straight commentary and frequently offered by people with vested interests or with little genuine expertise. The commentators who can seem to be the most successful are those who can shout the loudest into their megaphones without a nod really to facts that have a, you know, perhaps dig a bit of a hole in their argument. 
a controversial opinion can translate into clicks and clicks is how editors and managers measure success. So if you write an opinion piece that attracts a thousand comments, is retweeted 50,000 times on Twitter and attracts 200,000 clicks for your website, um, your phone will ring hot with television and radio hosts asking you to come on their show and to talk about it. They'll probably line up somebody else who disagrees with you, which will kick it along even further. And guaranteed your editor will be absolutely ecstatic and ask you to write something else just like that. And other people in the newsroom will observe that that was you know, a good thing to do. In order to win over new audiences and to build controversy like this, some media organisations are drifting from the traditional foundations of journalism, which are objectivity, balance and fairness, in favour of reporting with just an unapologetic, open ideological bias. And this has migrated from, say, areas of once straight commentary or opinion reporting and bled into actual news coverage. Um, Fox News, of course, is the best known example of this. It's sometimes referred to as viewer cocooning or niche news, which is telling consumers what they want to hear by pandering to their existing biases and beliefs. More than a decade ago, when I was the Washington correspondent for the ABC, there was a 2004 profile of George W. Bush in New York magazine written by a journalist called Ron Suskind. And it included the most extraordinary quote, which was unattributed at the time, but it came out later that it had been said by Karl Rove, who was Bush's chief of staff, who's a very adept political strategist. And Rove said to Suskind that journalists like Suskind existed in what the Bush inner circle called the reality-based community, which Rove defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from the judicious, from, from the judicious study of discernible reality. Yes, that's me. Uh, Rove said, that's not the way the world works anymore. We're an empire now and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, will act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. At the time that statement just caused, caused jaws to drop all over Washington, everyone thought it was unbelievable. But now, of course, it just looks utterly, incredibly prescient and well ahead of its time. We have, with the Trump presidency, truly arrived in some sort of post-reality or post-truth world where the old rule book no longer applies. As I mentioned before, Trump has said innumerable things and has innumerable things in the past, such as not paying income tax for two decades, that in any previous election would have rendered a candidate unelectable. He has said so many things that are demonstrably factually inaccurate that you couldn't even list them all, and yet he won the election. I'll come to why uh, that was the case later, but at the moment I just want to use it as an illustration to point out that I think we're living in an environment where opinion can often carry more currency than fact. The third trend is individual broadcasting. All of us now have the power to transmit our own messages and material, and that has led to the rise of the personal brand. Businesses have brands as well, and businesses have always had brands, but they now have many more tools to help cement or manage or change their brands if they want. This terminology around brand used to be tied to advertising and marketing, but now it has moved into the space of personal identity as well. So what do we even mean by brand in the context of the individual? Vanity Fair, I thought, had a good explanation for it a while back, which was that branding is a general term for the way you present yourself to the world and that successful branding is when you are seen as people, when people see you as you would like to be seen, not necessarily for what you really are. I think that this 
ties in a little bit with the post-truth world idea. I think we see it not only writ large in politics in some places, but also on things like Instagram where people use filters. That's a sort of form of, of I guess, post-truth where you're not presenting as you actually are. You're presenting a sort of enhanced version of yourself. All of us are now in control of our personal brands whether we are particularly public figures or not, thanks to social media. So, you know, do we have followers? Will they retweet what we want promoted to their followers? Are people buying what we're selling? In this uh, environment, You are what you're selling is yourself, your personal brand. I know some people find the idea of a personal brand or promoting oneself completely appalling. I do wonder these days if being called a narcissist is even an insult anymore. Uh, is there even such a thing as narcissism in this environment? Um, and I completely see that point. But the reality is, reality is that we live in a world where we all have digital identities and it's foolhardy to not attempt to control and manage that digital identity. Because brands have become so important, anything that detracts from somebody's brand is a problem. And so it's one of the reasons, along with filling airtime, that the media likes to step to seize on gaffes and missteps constantly. The rise of the ability to have individual broadcasting via social media has also changed the idea of what constitutes a community. You know, what do we mean by a community these days? In the past, we might have understood it as a um, geographic location, you know, the network of people around where we lived. Social media has radically redefined that. We can, of course, still have our local geographic community, but we can have a community of like-minded people. So you can have the community that all reads Miranda Devine's columns and they converse with each other. You can have the autism community that shares information via Facebook or email uh, directly with each other. The community of people who all watch a particular television show and then tweet about it in real time. That means that politicians and businesses have a way of reaching like-minded individuals um, very easily, far more easily than ever before, and influencing their conversations. But it's also much easier for those people to find and reach each other too. There's never been an easier way to reach and connect with audiences and markets than there currently is. These new layers of interconnectedness, I think, perhaps allow us to create authentic connections that we feel are missing a little bit with our political leaders. At a time when we feel more connected to all sorts of people, strangers um, who share a liking for MasterChef, to our grandparents who live interstate because we can talk to them on Facebook, we are feeling more and more disconnected from our political leaders. Polls, you know, there's that word again, um, show that Australians generally are very disgruntled with the leaders of both parties. We don't feel that the major parties address our chief concerns very well. The high and growing informal vote that we're seeing in elections raises the question of whether people are choosing to waste their votes because they don't like what's on offer. Yet digital connections can now be built up in a way that allow us to either forge around uh, the political classes in some ways or attempt to influence them. If those communities become large enough or they are effective, uh, particularly effective at lobbying, then the mainstream political class is compelled to pay attention to them. So if you take an example um, of this, you could look at the anti-vaccination lobby who have been incredibly successful at building a network of people based on utter misinformation um, and became quite powerful. They, of course, came to the government's attention ultimately in a way they didn't like because the government took punitive measures against people who don't vaccinate their kids. But they do illustrate the point that it is very easy to use social media to build up a quite sizable community of people. 
I wanted to also illustrate the way that communities can be built by referring to the podcast that I do with Annabelle Crabb, um, which is called Chat 10 Looks 3, which is a play on a song from the musical Chorus Line. Um, it's hosted on the website Squarespace and we sort of started doing it really for a bit of a lark, but we could see that it very quickly built, um, you know, 10,000 downloads, 50,000 downloads. Um, when I last checked, it was over 80,000 downloads per week, nearly 400,000 a month. We noticed in real life that people started coming up to us and identifying themselves as listeners of the podcast. I could tell straight away if they were 7.30 viewers or podcast listeners because of the manner in which they approached me. 7.30 people are like, oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. I just wanted to say the podcast people are like, hey, Salesy, how are you going? <laughs> yeah, much chattier. Um, we, we, the Facebook group we recently opened um, in July of last year because we felt we got this sense from the people that were coming up to us in real life that they were sort of itching for some sort of forum where they could interact with each other. And it grew just very, very rapidly. Um, now, this is not a group of people that you would normally consider a community. They don't live in the same place. Uh, they're very scattered around the country, indeed around the world. They don't have a common cause, such as a child with a disability or a political um, view. They are simply people who like talking about books and cooking and whatever TV they're binge watching and they presumably, for whatever reason, like Annabelle Crabbe and me. Um, We've noticed now in some locations they have set up groups where they meet in real life. So if you look at the events page on our Facebook group, you will see dozens of events, book clubs and um, picnics and things um, that have nothing to do with us but just people in geographic locations want to meet other people in this group. So it's incredible to see how this actual digital community has morphed into a real-life community or a series of real-life communities with very little input from us. I don't share this to brag, but just to give you an example of how easy it is to build a community of like-minded people and how easy that community then finds it to trade ideas back and forth. I said I'd come back earlier to the question of why facts don't seem to have the currency that they used to. And I don't have any particularly insightful answers on this question because I'm sort of part of the old school media where facts mattered and so I find it all a bit confounding really. Um, I do have one theory though, and it's nothing particularly startling or original, um, but it is this fact that I mentioned before that people are feeling incredibly let down by their political leaders and by the media. I went to a really interesting lunch just before the US presidential election and the guest of honour was the former US ambassador to Australia, Jeff Bleich. And the talk at the table centred on the rise of Trump and Sanders and so forth. And Jeff Bly shared his thoughts about America's national mood and how it had contributed to the rise of each candidate. Um, what was striking as he spoke was that I thought there were a lot of parallels in what he had to say to Australia. He said that in his country he could identify three key moods in the electorate. The first was residual anger from the Iraq war and the global financial crisis and the belief that the government let American citizens down by making poor decisions and protecting vested interests. The second is anxiety caused by rapidly changing technology and how that's evaporating many jobs, both blue and white collar. And the third is a sense of betrayal that the American dream, you know, a secure job, a home, a dignified retirement, that your kids would have a better life than you is out of reach for many people as the middle class in the United States shrinks and the gap between rich and poor grows. Now, America is not Australian, so the analysis can only travel so far. And our system is not really designed to throw up fringe dwellers such as Trump and Sanders to be the figureheads of either major party, although it's not an impossibility when you look at, say, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. The pattern in Australia tends to be that voters coalesce around minor and frequently short-lived parties such as Palmer United or One Nation um, or the Democrats. 
nonetheless, if you look at those three core sentiments that he identified among American voters, anger, anxiety and betrayal, I think that you can clearly track them in the Australian electorate too, and that is disrupting politics and the media. I think voters' anger in Australia is not necessarily directed at any botched policy decisions or the response to a major crisis or disaster. Rather, it's about the repeated breaking of election promises and the revolving door of political leadership, both giving rise to the perception that politicians are more worried about preserving their grip on power than what most matters to Australians. Each of the recent Australian Prime Ministers has violated Australian voters' expectations. Kevin Rudd campaigned on climate change as the great moral issue of our time and then walked away from his emissions trading scheme. Julia Gillard vowed that there'd be no carbon tax under the government she led, and then, of course, there was. Tony Abbott promised to lead a grown-up government with no surprises, only to startle the nation with his first budget, sinking a raft of pre-election pledges. And Malcolm Turnbull's results so far have been partly attributed to the fact that many voters feel like he's not delivering what was advertised on the packaging. Anxiety is another noticeable mood in the electorate. Like the rest of the world, Australia's um, jobs market and economy is massively affected by rapidly changing technology. And that's a source of great anxiety for people who feel that their jobs may not exist in the short to medium term. We've watched that play out in Australia already in the car and textiles industries. We're seeing it with the steel industry. And what we're seeing is only the beginning. Researchers at Oxford University believe that about 25% of jobs in the UK will disappear over the next 20 years, and it's safe to assume the figure would be similar here. They calculated the jobs most vulnerable to robotic takeover by assessing the skills required to perform them. So they looked at social ability, negotiation, persuasion, mm -hmm. assisting and caring for others, originality, fine arts, dexterity, and the space required to work. They're all hard things for robots to do. So if you're a psychologist or a manager or a caregiver, those are the jobs least likely to be automated because it's just hard for robots to do them. But if you're a taxi driver, factory worker, a pathologist or an accountant, you may be in trouble. Jobs that involve number crunching, squeezing into small spaces, manipulating small instruments in precise ways or performing repetitive tasks are unlikely to be done by humans for much longer. So that means even formerly very prestigious jobs like surgery will become probably automated. The feeling of betrayal isn't confined to voters in America either. The middle class in Australia isn't disappearing the way it is in the United States, but that doesn't mean that people feel that their life is improving either. For decades, many Australians have assumed that they will land a job, buy a house, uh, raise a family if they wish, and then have a secure retirement with the help of some government benefits conferred in exchange for a lifetime of paying tax. There's now a dawning realisation for future generations. In fact, I'd say for people probably younger than me, nobody would assume that they would be retiring on a government pension at all. You wouldn't even factor it into your thinking, I don't think. The 2015 intergenerational report shows that Australia will have a growing population that lives longer, probably not telling anyone in this room anything they don't know, which means we're going to have a smaller tax base to pay for government services. It's almost inevitable that many of the things now that people take for granted that are free will be user pays, um, including sacred public services such as health and education. House prices in Australia escalated by 141% from 1996 to 2015, putting home affordability out of reach for a lot of people, particularly given that wage growth has been flat. At the moment, a lot of Australians haven't given up on the idea of home ownership, and that means that levels of debt in Australia are particularly high. We carry, um, according to research by the Reserve Bank, um, more debt relative to the size of the national economy than any other country in the world. 
on international comparisons, the Australian middle class is doing okay. We are, according to the IMF, one of the exceptions around the world to the middle class contractions. But there are some warning signs that could change. One of them is the stagnant wages growth. Um, there have also been some figures that the ABS put out looking at the income share of Australia's middle class, and it shrank between 2012 and 2013, while the split going to Australia's richest families grew. So I think there's a feeling overall that people understand that the future is probably going to involve harder work, less secure jobs, and less government, less government support. And that makes some people feel ripped off and let down. The fact is that a lot of these issues don't have any easy answer. Um, technology will cost some people their jobs. Demographic pressures will mean there are fewer dollars for governments to spend on services. In the US, Trump and Sanders offered fairly broad brush populist solutions to Americans' concerns. Yet the reality is that for a lot of people, there is not going to be a fix. There's only going to be adaptation. Politicians hate saying that. They don't like to say that something can't be fixed and that people have to get used to it and adapt. But the reality is that anybody who says that they can fix some of these types of issues without pain for some voters um, and without a change in what future governments can hope to deliver is frankly lying. So that is a fairly pessimistic um, backdrop, as I said, but I want to finish by sharing something a little bit more optimistic, which is that despite all the change and uncertainty and disruption, some things I think remain the same. During my career, I have met many people who are givers and not takers. I don't always remember every famous person I meet, but I do often remember the particularly kind ones. And I do remember the people that I've seen in places like New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, who showed real leadership through their behaviour. You don't have to build a community of millions of people um, on watching your, YouTube, watching your YouTube videos or listening to your podcast um, to have an impact. And I've seen time and time again in my career that the best leadership is not necessarily about being the person in the front of the room talking. It's often just in personal behaviour and integrity and influencing what happens in the world immediately around you. So technology may change what we do, may disrupt what we do, things may change rapidly, newsrooms and other workplaces may be unrecognisable from what they were 20 years ago. But I see that some things remain the same in this environment and they still remain valuable. Commitment, integrity, hard work, kindness, community, whether it's in the digital world or in the real world. And I hope that those things will never change and that if people pay attention to those kind of values that they might prove a guide for politicians and journalists and business people with integrity as we try to navigate through this world where things often seem a little bit upside down. So thank you very much, Tom. Let me hand back over to you. Lee, Lee thank you. Um, now it's time for Q&A. Our first question goes to James Jeffrey, who's the Struth columnist at The Australian. <laughs> And he's author of a forthcoming book called My Family and Other Animus. <laughs> James. That's out on April 2nd through <laughs> MUP. Have you got something in your boot out the front? <laughs> no, I'll bring a pile next time. <laughs> so just, um, who's got the more challenging future um, coming up? Our political class or our media? This isn't a Barnaby specific question. Um, just don't bat. Two, two groups are sort of drifting further from, you know, you're talking about public trust, um, engagement and all the rest of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. And the reality is um, a lot of these questions, I, f I feel like sometimes I, I um, 
talked to people about these things or I've written, you know, a little book about some of this stuff and um, I don't feel like I have any answers. And maybe that's a symptom of what I do for a living, that I'm just used to posing questions, not barrelling up answers. I mean, I certainly think that to go into politics is increasingly just looks unattractive. You know, it just looks so hard. The hours, the scrutiny, the social media, the constant, if you look at any politician's Twitter feed, the constant barrage of just disgraceful abuse. When actually most politicians that you meet are, try, are there because they're community-minded or they're trying to do the best they can. There's not that many people that you meet that you think, oh, you're a horrible person. They're usually there trying to do the best they can. Um, and I find the sort of absence of goodwill really disturbing. And it, I do find that concerning that it will potentially deter good people from wanting to do that. The media, what um, I worry about is... For people like me, who I, I genuinely don't have very strong political opinions in either direction. I'm a bit of a um, contrarian, I suppose. So often if I'm with somebody who holds a particularly strong viewpoint, I'll sort of tend to argue the opposite viewpoint just because I get annoyed by certainty um, in people. Uh, Tom will attest to that many times at the pub. We rowed over silly things. Um, uh, and so if I'm with somebody who's very left, then I'll sort of feel like I'm being very right and, and then vice versa. I just think where are people like me going to work in the future? Because if everyone, if all the media organisations sort of stake out a particular position, like I couldn't host a show like um, Andrew Bolt because I just don't have, my opinions just aren't that strong. So I just wonder how that's all going to shake down if, if every media organisation ends up saying, oh, well, we're the you know, right-wing ones or we're the left-wing ones. Um, you know, I just, I don't know. And I feel sort of um, disturbed in that uh, young people often ask me, should I go into journalism? And I've had such a wonderful career and I've loved it so much. But I always hesitate now because I just feel like the future is so uncertain. I feel like if you really want to do it, do it. But if you're tossing up between being a journalist and a pharmacist, I don't know, maybe be a pharmacist. <laughs> um, when um, people are confronted about why they don't go into politics, um, and one of our favourite political lines is Ronald Reagan. Uh, it's true hard work never killed anybody, but I figure why take the chance? <laughs> <laughs> Graham Samuel. Thanks, Lee, and uh, thanks for the contribution you make to uh, excellent journalism in Australia. Uh, you mentioned a whole lot of off-limits, and I won't go into any of those, but you didn't mention Emeril Barici in that context. And I don't want you to necessarily comment upon a colleague, but the policy of the ABC, which is to focus on uh, facts, uh, fairness, etc., and then to uh, effectively remove uh, unfair opinion as it adjudicates or uh, inappropriate. You got a reaction to all that? Um, do you mean, do I have a reaction to the ABC taking it off? That's right. Yeah. Well, um, look, I wouldn't comment on a colleague, no. basically, I think it'd be inappropriate. Um, but clearly the ABC made its decision that it didn't think that that work um, was appropriate and so pulled it down. So I would tend to view that as evidence that ABC editorial, that there is an, an editorial standard that the ABC tries to adhere to. So, you know, that would be my thoughts on that. <coughs> Yes, sir. Yep. Richard Beatty, <coughs> Lee. Um, you mentioned uh, what's been happening with the internet and the digitisation of the media. When the internet and Facebook and Google and Wikipedia all started, there was an enormously optimistic idea about how this was going to be able to democratise the world and make it a really better place. It's turned out that there's all sorts of evil 
goes on uh, with the communications possible now. And the fact that states like Russia can have the influences they had in the uh, US uh, election is uh, just one example, let alone the terrorists. There is now talk about the regulation of these new information giants. As a journalist and as somebody thinking about, as you've been talking today on communication, how do you think the future is going to turn out with the almost inevitable regulation of what has been a completely wild free-for-all so far? Because I'm a journalist and I believe in, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of information and stuff, my position on these things is always that there should be as little regulation as possible. Um, so I would always be suspicious, I guess, of efforts to attempt to regulate. I understand where that's... Um, coming from. But nonetheless, I think that um, people who believe in, in free speech, people who believe in free media should push back against that. Because to me, it always just seems a bit of a slippery slope. Because who's the person judging, well, this is what requires regulation. Tom and, Tom and I were talking before about um, Brett Stevens from the Wall Street Journal, who came out here late last year and was speaking to um, the at a dinner for the Lowy Institute. And he was talking about this trigger warning stuff on US college campuses and how basically if you come now to a college campus with an unpalatable opinion that people don't like, that you will be screamed down and howled down and hounded out of there. That to me just seems so anti-intellectual. Like, aren't we meant to be sort of hearing other people's points of view to think about them in relation to ours to think, well, do mine actually stack up? Um, so all of that sort of censorship, regulation and whatnot, as a journalist, I find uh, makes me suspicious. Yeah, John Stuart Mill famously said, um, only when you know the uh, strengths of your opponent's arguments do you know the weaknesses of your own. So that's part of what Lee's saying. Simon Cowan from CIS. <coughs> Thanks very much for coming and speaking, Lee. It's interesting, one of the things you talked about was the future of sort of that investigative, deep journalism in a world where people don't pay for anything. One of the solutions that has been proposed to that is the idea of the government funding quality journalism or quality media. The like CIS the <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, but, but much broader than that in, in terms of, I'm assuming, things like the Australian and Fairfax receiving government subsidies. As an organisation that, that prides itself on not taking any government money to maintain that independence, I'd be very interested in your view as to whether or not you think that would compromise some of the core elements of that sort of holding government to account if a government of a different persuasion could withhold funding. Well, I mean, that's the environment, I guess, that you operate in at the ABC all the time. Like, you know, uh, um, if you if a go certain government comes in, they don't like the ABC, are they going to withdraw funding? But for me in my role, I mean, I don't know if in management they think about that. I never think about that because I just think then I would not be doing the job that I think I need to do, which is asking what I think a reasonable, fair-minded member of the audience would like to ask to that politician or person in power if they were in my position. So I try to never think about, um, oh, am I making life hard for Michelle Guthrie because I just gave the Prime Minister a hard interview. I never think about that stuff because I just think it would limit, you know, my ability to do my job. And um, I've never had any pressure or any blowback for any interview I've ever done inside the ABC. I think as well, when you look at Public funding is not necessarily a guarantee of independence and fair and quality journalism in the same way that private funding is not, not a guarantee of um, not independent journalism. Look at what Jeff Bezos, Bezos is doing with the Washington Post. The Washington Post is having like a renaissance at the moment, I think. I don't see any evidence that the Washington Post is prosecuting any sort of particular 
pro-Amazon line, I think Jeff Bezos has that publication because he sees it as prestigious and powerful. I think that's been awesome for journalism that he's gone in there and taken that over. So I think as journalists sometimes, you know, we can't be too precious about who's funding the journalism as long as they, in my view, believe in what journalism is, which is independent, fair, objective, like, you know, as you're doing at CIS, trying very hard to deliver genuinely independent research. I think that's what all journalists should be doing, whether they work for, you know, Rupert Murdoch or Jeff Bezos or the ABC. That, in my view, is the standard to which all journalists should aspire. One final question and just a reminder, uh, it's all off the record. Uh, Stephen Brooks from The Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Stephen, he's probably wasted two hours. <laughs> no, I enjoyed the talk immensely and Lee, let's negotiate afterwards. <laughs> Is it a source of continual frustration for you that night after night you interview these politicians and they completely fail to answer the questions that you put to them? You had a very newsworthy interview recently with Barnaby Joyce. What was your mission going into that? What did you want the public to find out about his particular circumstances? And how do you feel you went? And would you have done anything differently in reflecting on it? I think um, when I went, the main mission for me is to try to land people that people want to hear from, right? Like any journo. So your first thing is, can you get people who are in the news to come on the show? So that's your number one thing. Um, then the number two thing I think for, for me in my role is what is the um, public interest value in this? You know, what, what does this person bring that is um, something that my audience would want to hear about? In that case, because traditionally in Australia politicians' private lives have, have been, you know, off, off um, what's the word, like out of bounds, um, I was thinking, well, is there any issue here with the intersection of his private behaviour with his... Um, public duties and the spending of public money. And so I tried to tailor the questions around that. I also thought before the interview that he might come on and attempt to say, that's private, that's private, that's private, I'm not answering it. So therefore I felt like if I try to take the questions away from the terrain where he can say that's private and say, no, no, it's not, I'm asking about expenditure of taxpayer dollars, that it's hard to then argue um, that we're in private domain. Nonetheless, he did still attempt to do that. So then I just kept attempting to ask questions in that um, public sort of domain space. Um, and so then I, I think I was heartened to see that that was then followed up with, you know, multiple people have done stories looking at how many nights has he claimed in Canberra, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so what was, sorry, the original question was, what, what was I just trying to achieve with that? Was that yeah. yeah. And then, uh, would you, you know, on reflection and deep reasoning, would you have done anything differently? Or? No. Because I think I, I think I did ask all of the questions that go to um, stuff that does have a bearing on his ability to do his job and his conduct in his job. I mean, there's, of course, moral questions, but is it my role as the host of 7.30 to be a moral arbiter? No, it's probably my role to check that people are using their power in appropriate ways, whether they're, you know, business leaders or politicians or whatever. So I think I come at it from that frame whereas um you know if he, if he was on a diff in a different space you know people interview in different ways and ask different questions you know so if he were on um alan jones or ray hadley or the project you know they would ask different questions so it's a case of you judging your audience you're judging your role you're judging the tone of your program and trying to keep in a i guess a space that fits with you know all of that stuff and then there's a little Oh yeah, sorry. Um, sorry, sweets. Um, 
sometimes it can be frustrating, but um, mostly not because I tend to think when people do that, they don't, what they don't realise is how annoying that is to the audience. Like the number one piece of feedback I get from people is why don't politicians ever answer the question? And I think, you know, you're on my show, you've got this space speaking to hundreds of thousands of people. It's an opportunity to persuade people across to your position. You can't do that just by waffling on. You can do that by making a reasoned, crisp argument. So I think to waffle and, and be verbose and not answer questions is just very weak. You, I think actually you could make a lot more capital, frankly, by if you were confident in your position, like people like John Howard and Paul Keating used to be. Um, you make your case forcefully and you hopefully win some voters over that way. Lee, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, just wait there for a moment. Uh, CIS has been uh, very lucky to have a group of uh, distinguished, intellectually sound and business savvy uh, directors, none more so than our next speaker, Melinda Conrad. Thank you so much, Lee, for joining us today. And thank you, Tom, for pulling favors with one, yet one more of your mates to come and, uh, and join us today. I think um, at the start of 2018, a lot of people talked about how this was going to be the year of the tech clash, where technology, which had once always been embraced as the savior of democracy, was going to be cracked open and, and examined in terms of what, what the negatives are. Um, and, you know, Zuckerberg talked about how Facebook was there to, its main purpose was to make the world more open and connected. And while we do think that on some level the world is more open and connected, I think this year we're asking ourselves, hold on, there's some, some threats to truth um, and openness and connectivity that we have to ask ourselves about. Um, Lee, you did a really wonderful job of uh, articulating how the, the media environment has changed, talking about the accelerated pace of the news cycle, the rise of opinion, and also the role of individual broadcasting. Um, you know, we at CIS like to believe that we're living in a reality-based community, <laughs> and we're very grateful for people like yourselves and other journalists in the room for committing your careers to excellence in journalism and having the courage to be independent and also having the resilience to, to look beyond those trolls. So thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you for sharing your time. Mm -hmm.